Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 7. This is a long chapter, so we'll read only from the New Testament today. Last time, at the end of chapter 6, Stephen was arrested and falsely accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God and speaking against the temple and the law. And now he answers these charges. Chapter 7, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. 
When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring, me, bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, 
You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Amen. You may be seated. I titled this morning's sermon, Not the First Martyr. Now, I'm, I'm obviously being a little ironic there because Stephen is widely known as the first Christian martyr, and he is indeed the first martyr in the book of Acts. The first person actually to give his life for his faith in Jesus Christ. And the martyrdom of Stephen uh, represents a major transition in the history of Acts. So far, uh, the church has been kind of harassed by the authorities. There have been a couple of major arrests and interrogations, and the apostles have even been beaten. But now, in this chapter, the dam of opposition breaks. And the flood of violence against the church begins to pour through with a ferocity um, that we haven't seen since the crucifixion of Jesus himself. So from now on, the church is going to be laboring under the very real threat uh, that their lives, like their Savior's life, um, may end up being the cost of their faithfulness to him as they continue as we've seen, to carry out his work as he is, uh, as they are the agents of his ascended heavenly reign at the right hand of God by the power of the Holy Spirit that he's poured out at Pentecost. Okay, so why do I say not the first martyr? Well, we, we would be wrong to think that this um, outburst of persecution happens in some kind of historical vacuum kind of out of the blue. In fact, um, Stephen's speech in this chapter is really making the opposite point. He's, what he's saying here is that Israel's persistent opposition to Jesus and the messengers of Jesus is simply continuing a repeated pattern echoing down through the entire history of the covenant of grace. That's going to be our first 
point this morning, uh, covering really the bulk of Stephen's sermon, which is a pattern recounted. Although we're going to divide that big chunk up into first Abraham, verses 1 to 8, Joseph, verses 9 to 16, Moses the prince, verses 17 to 29, Moses the prophet, verses 30 to 43, and then Joshua to Solomon, verses 44 to 50. After that, at the end of Stephen's sermon, we're going to see how he shows that how that pattern is now being repeated in the present day. Verses 51 to 53. And then finally, we'll see how Stephen's death at the end of the chapter follows a related pattern, which is the pattern of the death of his Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. So the, the big headings for the sermon are going to be a pattern recounted the pattern repeated, and the pattern of the Redeemer. All right, now, you might be wondering, why does Stephen even say all of this? Why is there this pretty long sort of history lesson uh, rehashing, it feels like, really, a, a lot of the Old Testament? You might think, well, maybe he's just kind of stalling for time as a filibuster, like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. The Constitution of the United States, page one, top left-hand corner. Oh, that scene. Um, but that's not what's happening. There is a actually a unified point to it all the way through. This isn't just a litany of historical moments in Israel's history. Um, there's this unified point that uh, is sort of two-sided, as, as one writer puts it. There's, there's a, there's, he's doing defense and offense in this speech. So um, remember first, what were the accusations that the false witnesses brought against Stephen in chapter 6? They said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses, number one, and God, number two. And then they said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, that's number three, and the law, number four. And so the question is, has Stephen spoken against Moses, against God, against the temple, or against the law? By implication... The even bigger question is, is the gospel message of the Christian church contrary to Old Testament religion? Is the gospel contrary to Moses, God, the temple, or the law? That's the charge that Stephen Stephen is seeking to answer in this speech. And he's answering it all the way through at every point. The reality is that neither Jesus, nor Stephen, nor the church were ever seeking to tear down Old Testament religion and replace it with something else. So the gospel message, we really should think of as Old Testament religion now come into its own. Because in Christ now, true Israelites, that is those who have faith in Jesus, the true Israelite, were now going, like C.S. Lewis says, further up and further in to, to that same faith of God's people that God's people had always shared from the very beginning. And so as as Stephen opens with Abraham, in verse 2, he starts by saying, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And by calling them brothers and fathers, uh, he's identifying with them. He's saying, I'm an Israelite like you. I'm not something different. I am one of you. I'm trying to be faithful to the one true God of glory. 
the God of the Old Testament. Abraham isn't just your father, he's our father. He's my father too. By going all the way back to Abraham, um, you should notice also that Stephen is taking his listeners to a time long before the temple. Right? So one of the charges is that he has spoken against the temple, right? But but Christianity is not anti-temple. What Christianity does is it sees the temple as it really is, as it always was. That is a temporary, a temporary and partial revelation for a specific period within the history of God's people designed from the beginning to reveal something much bigger than itself. God's people haven't always had the Jerusalem temple, and they're not always going to have the temple. One one commentator suggests this is why Stephen goes all the way back to Abraham in Mesopotamia before he even came to Canaan. And, And yet God spoke to him even there, even outside of the promised land. And so, yes, the, the temple is very important. The temple is very sacred in salvation history for a time. But the point is the temple does not somehow contain God. And it's not the only way that God has ever revealed himself. And that's where Stephen's going to end up, right? He's already um, building to that point where he ends the speech by starting with Abraham at a time before, long before the temple existed. All right, now, uh, finally, on the point of Abraham, Abraham, as the man of faith, uh, provides a contrast with some of the later examples of Israelites who reject the word of God. A lot of the sermon, has, of the speech, has to do with Israelites rejecting God's word and God's messengers, but Abraham is the model of a person who believes God. He's the model of a person who, um, who listens, who obeys, uh, even when... God tells him things that kind of stretch believability, and yet Abraham believes God, and God follows through. Um, The descendants of Abraham, on the other hand, haven't always done that. In fact, they characteristically have refused to do that time after time after time throughout their history down to the present day. All right, now next we come to Joseph. Joseph um, is the first example of somebody rejected by Israel, um, that's Israel in seed form, of course, because at that point Israel consists just of the actual sons of Jacob. But still, Joseph is rejected by Israel, and then what happens to him? He's exalted by God to become two things, a ruler and a savior. Rejected by Israel, exalted by God as ruler and savior. Does that start to ring any bells? See, Stephen uh, never says this explicitly, but he's, he's clearly thinking about Jesus here. Rejected by Israel, now exalted by God to become ruler and savior. And that pattern continues with Moses. Think about how, how does Israel respond uh, and uh, first respond to his uh, potential leadership. They reject Moses from the very beginning. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Verse 27. And then now look down at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God God sent as both ruler and redeemer 
by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And so you see Moses follows that same pattern as Joseph, rejected by Israel, exalted by God to be ruler and judge. Uh, sorry, ruler and savior. Ruler and savior. <clears throat> or ruler and redeemer in Moses' case. All right. Uh, let's remember here, Stephen has been accused of speaking against the law, right? That's one of the charges. But as Stephen recounts the history of Moses, one of the things he does in the process is he makes very clear his very high reverence for the law of God, for the Torah of Moses. Uh, Stephen says he received living oracles to give us, verse 38. But of course, not everybody in Israel had that high reverence for the law that Moses gave them. There were some in Israel who were opposed to that law of God. Our fathers, he says, refused to obey him, verse 39, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So the pattern that faced Moses as a prince in Egypt continued to face Moses the prophet in the wilderness. And it's in that context that Stephen brings up uh, Moses foretelling in Deuteronomy of a prophet like me, a prophet like Moses to come, that God was one day going to raise up from your brothers, Moses said. So once again, Stephen's laying the groundwork for them to see that that pattern you find in Joseph's life, the pattern you find in Moses' life, it's all building to the place where we can see that pattern most clearly, which is in the Lord Jesus the great prophet like Moses, rejected by Israel, but now exalted as ruler and redeemer. All right, now Stephen finally comes to the subject of the temple. Has Stephen been speaking against this holy place? The answer is no. Stephen is not anti-temple. False witnesses say, say it's not true. He's not anti-temple. But he is very clearly critiquing a certain way of treating the temple, or thinking about the temple. Our fathers, said, um, had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. And there's the first thing. The tabernacle from the very beginning was not an end in itself. It was not the full reality. It was a shadow. It was a copy. It was made according to a pattern Moses saw. It was a copy of something in heaven. A copy on earth of a heavenly reality. Moses made it according to the pattern that he had seen. The Greek word for pattern there is the one from which we get the word type and typology. So if we ever talk about type or typology, that, that idea of a, of a copy, a pattern, is really important. The tabernacle was a copy on earth of a greater heavenly reality that was going to be more fully revealed in the future. What that means is that the temple was always designed to be temporary, beginning with, uh, beginning with the tabernacle. Um, he says, our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so you see the tabernacle's role in Israel's life uh, developed over time. The history of the tabernacle and the temple is it changing history. It's a history of change, not of permanence. 
Eventually, it did come to a single kind of semi-permanent resting place at Shiloh, uh, as you may remember we saw last time in the evening service in Joshua 18. We talked about when the, when the tabernacle found that resting place at Shiloh, where God was going to make his name to dwell like he promised in Deuteronomy. And Stephen says, so it was until the days of David. But in the days of David, things changed again. David moved the tabernacle to Jerusalem. And then he started planning for the construction of a temple to replace that tabernacle. So once again, there's this change. There's this forward movement. As the old sanctuary gives way to a more full revelation in the temple. It's no disrespect to the temple then to suggest that it too is a temporary institution in the history of God's plan. Even that too will pass away if a more full revelation of God comes to take its place. After all, verse 48, and here Stephen really comes to the high point of everything he has to say about the temple. You may remember that when Solomon built the temple, when it was finished and he's praying, what does he say? Solomon himself prays, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. And so Stephen says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And he goes on to quote from Isaiah 66. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? When actually heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. God's saying, I made it all. It would be absurd to think that anything on the earth that I made could actually house or contain me. That was never the temple's function. It's interesting that the Lord used to speak of the the place where he was going to make his name dwell. His name was going to dwell there. It wasn't going to contain God himself. The temple was going to reveal God's presence in a special way, but it was never going to contain God's presence. One commentator named Ben Witherington Witherington speaks of a a God-in-a-box theology. Think about that. A lot of people have a God-in-a-box theology. We want to contain God within these boundaries that we can manage and manipulate to fit our own desires and spiritual goals. But that is the kind of God-in-a-box thinking that Stephen is rejecting and opposing here. It was quite possible for the Israelites to have a distorted, even an, an idolatrous Conception of the temple. The temple could become an idol. As though the temple was the be-all and end-all of God's relationship with Israel. And perhaps, and this is the big problem, perhaps they couldn't even imagine a relationship with God without it. See, that's precisely the problem. Because the temple was always designed from the very beginning to point to something else. To point beyond itself. It was a picture on earth of a pattern in heaven. And from the time of its construction, it was always destined to give way, to give way to a bigger and fuller revelation of God in the future. So Christianity then is not a rejection of the temple. It's going further up and further in to the reality, the spiritual reality of the temple in heaven through Christ 
who's gone into the heavenly sanctuary. See, when, you may remember the story of when Solomon uh, finished the temple and the glory cloud of God's presence filled the temple uh, so thickly and brightly and powerfully that the priests, it says, could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. See, even then, back in 1 Kings, that was just a foretaste. That was just a glimpse for Israel of a future day that we read about not long ago when suddenly there came from that same heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, right? And it filled the entire house where the church was sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they... And they they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The temple building, the temple building is obsolete now and is passing away, yes, but only because there's another temple now. There is still a temple. It's a temple made of people. So now that Christ has ascended into the heavenly temple, the pattern in heaven, what he's done is he's sent the Holy Spirit now to bring heaven down to earth, establishing his presence now permanently among his people. And Stephen, of course, he doesn't spell all that out. We're reflecting on this in light of the whole Bible and in light of the rest of the New Testament. But that's clearly the direction where all this is pointing. The problem is that Israel, once again, just like with Joseph, just like with Moses, just like with so many of the other prophets later in their history, still they are acting in the time of Stephen as a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. They have the outward religion of Judaism, but they don't have it in their hearts because they're always resisting the Holy Spirit. He says, as your fathers did, so do you. Again, Stephen is not the first martyr if you count the Old Testament prophets. That long pattern of rejecting God's messengers has continued right on down through the ages, culminating, Stephen says, in the crucifixion of Jesus himself. I told you um, that Stephen's speech had two sides, defense and offense. Well, here's the offense. He's defending himself against the charges of speaking against God, Moses, the temple, and the law. No, he's doing none of those things. But now he turns the table. Who are the ones who are really opposing God, opposing Moses, Opposing the temple, what it really represents. Opposing the law. It's the Jerusalem leadership. They are rejecting yet again the one God has appointed to be ruler and redeemer. They are the ones who are acting against the law. And against uh, Moses and against God, against the temple. Now, by the way, notice he doesn't say our fathers anymore. He says your fathers persecuted the prophets. He's making a distinction now. He's part of true Israel. They are part of apostate Israel. He says, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The pattern's being repeated, but it is not Stephen who's guilty of rebellion and blasphemy. It's his accusers who are guilty of rebellion and blasphemy. But that is not a message that they are willing to hear. And it just makes their rage begin to boil to the point of overflowing. Stephen has cut them to the heart, verse 54. It's a good translation from the King James. 
where the ESV says enraged. It literally means, the literal meaning of that word is divided with a saw. It's like Stephen has taken a saw to their hearts and torn them apart with the truth. Their rage becomes physical. You can imagine them grinding their teeth in this visceral, overwhelming feeling of fury and hatred because what Stephen has said is true and they do not want to hear it. But when the floodgates of violence really open is when Stephen looks up and he sees this vision that God has just given to him in this pivotal moment. He sees this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Um, People have discussed different reasons why Jesus is standing here. Of course, we say Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down. It represents his seat of authority at the right hand of God. Now he's standing. A couple of common suggestions are that he's standing maybe as Stephen's true judge standing to deliver an innocent verdict, not guilty. Uh, Or perhaps he's standing more as as Stephen's advocate, uh, bearing witness to Stephen's innocence as Stephen has borne witness to Christ. In any case, when Stephen simply says uh, what he sees, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, that's when the the fury of the mob really erupts here. And they, they sweep him away with them outside the city to take his life. They're so angry. If you look now at verses 59 and 60, as the stones are just hitting him from every side, Stephen has just time to say two things, two last words, we might call them. Luke is very careful to remember and recount here Think about what's the significance of these two last words of Stephen. Well, it's no accident that they are very, very similar to two of the so-called seven last words of Jesus from the cross. The first of which was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's in Luke's Gospel, 23-34. And the last thing Jesus said before he died was, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It's also in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 2346. Luke is is deliberately bringing out the parallel here between the death of Stephen and the death of his Savior. That's why I've labeled the last point the pattern of the Redeemer. See, just as Jesus' death repeated and really culminated that pattern, echoing down the Old Testament of God's servants being rejected by Israel, exalted by God as ruler and redeemer, in the same way, Stephen's death is following that same pattern because he's a servant of Jesus. And Stephen's life and death are modeling forth the life and death of Jesus to the people of Jerusalem, even to these people who are taking his life. Even one of them in particular, who's going to seek the life of many others like Stephen until Christ miraculously stops him in his tracks and transforms him too into a Christ-like, Christ-portraying model of that suffering that leads to glory, which is the Christian life. I'm talking, of course, about Saul, verse 57 
who's later going to become the Apostle Paul. We'll talk about much more in future sermons. Something you and I need to understand really clearly as we contemplate the martyrdom of Stephen is that his experience in this chapter is not the exception, but the norm for followers of Jesus. Not that we're all going to be called to give our lives for Jesus, although some of us could be. But see, Stephen was not the first martyr, and he would not be the last. And even for those who aren't called actually to die for confessing Christ, listen to what 1 Peter 2 says. As you come to him, verse 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. It's that same idea, rejected by God, rejected by men, exalted by God as his servants, becoming God's temple on earth. That's the life of the church. That's the life that you and I are called to live. Expect to be rejected by people, but exalted by God in union with Christ to be his temple you and I are God's temple now. The church throughout the world, Resurrection Orthodox Presbyterian Church, is the temple of God. The glory cloud of God's presence that once filled Solomon's temple has now filled you, has filled us. Because we have the spirit of Pentecost. That's who we are. What that means is that you can expect, you can count on being rejected by men. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's who we are in Christ. Christ, who was rejected for us, who laid down his life so that we could have our sins forgiven. But even though he was rejected by men, what did God the Father do? He exalted him as ruler and redeemer as our ruler, as our redeemer. And what that means for you is that whatever God may call on you to to suffer or to give up in this life as a rejected one in union with the rejected one, it's all worth it. There's nothing that God will not abundantly repay in this life and the next by his grace kindness towards you because you're precious and chosen. He loves you. He's going to welcome you with open arms. I just want to close by reminding all of us that something we see in Acts chapter 7 is that Jesus Christ really is the great dividing line that, that sorts the whole world into just two groups with nothing in between. On the one side, there are those who embrace his redemption and submit to his rule. And on the other hand, there are those who reject him. Jesus is still rejected on the one hand, redeemer and ruler on the other. And so that choice 
is still before each one of you, each one of us today. And the question for you is, are you going to stand with Stephen, enduring maybe, God calls you to, that fury of the world, but looking in hope to Jesus? Because he's your ruler, and he's your redeemer, and you received his gift of salvation. Or, the only other choice, there is no third option, the only other choice is to join with the majority. To join with the rebels who reject the rule of Christ who refuse to believe his word, who refuse to obey his authority, and just go their own way. Those are the only two options. There's no neutrality in this great decisive question of life. And what that means for each of us is that right now is the time to open up your hand and to receive that free gift of rescue and redemption that only Jesus can give, that Jesus came to give at the cost of his own life. That's how precious it is. So that when you stand on the brink of death, you too will be able to say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You'll be able to trust that he will. Why? Because he's your ruler. Because he's your redeemer. You're chosen and precious in his sight. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for the courage that you gave through the power of the Holy Spirit to Stephen to bear witness in this way to the risen Lord Jesus and to endure uh, the stones that were thrown at him and even to give his life. Lord, you've given us the history of Stephen for our good, and we thank you that by faith, though he is dead, he still speaks to us. And Lord, we also know that he's not finally dead because you're not the God of the dead but of the living and so Lord we ask that you would grant us to share in the faith of Stephen Lord help us against our doubts help us when it's hard to believe help us when it's hard to embrace Christ because of our flesh because of our ignorance our limitations our struggles Lord give us your spirit we pray to empower us and help us to cling to Christ and to Christ alone for forgiveness and peace with you and for life everlasting so that when it comes time for us to meet you face to face, we will be able to say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.